I was hooked by the appeal that um, you could work hard and you saw those results. So um, I think coming from team sports, you could work hard and still not be successful because there were so many different aspects that had to click and have to go right for that team to be successful. Whereas I noticed from a really early stage that if I did the work, I was going to be successful. And um, it didn't take long for my times to times to drop. I kind of call it the honeymoon period now with some of the athletes that I coach that, you know, in those first six to 12 months, it's really good because if you get the training right and if you're patient and kind of just hit that sweet spot in training, it's almost like every second weekend you can go out there and uh, PR a race. That's Brady Trellfall. And this is episode 65 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in running. This week, I spoke with my first Aussie, Brady Trellfall. Brady's a 219 marathoner, a coach with Run to PB, and host of the popular Inside Running podcast. In this episode, which we recorded a few months ago, we got into his introduction to the sport and progression as an athlete, coaching, Australia's rich running history, what the running culture looks like in his country, how the Inside Running podcast came to be, what's exciting him in the sport right now, and a lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. So let's get right to it with Brady Trellfall. into things. Brady Trellfall, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you for having me, Mario. Looking forward to yeah, chatting all things running with you. I was just saying off air that, yeah, looking forward to sharing my Australian accent with your listeners. <laughs> I am sure they will appreciate it. You are the first Australian guest that I've had on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I just had my first Canadian not too long ago with Rob Watson, and here we are expanding internationally to Australia. So I'm excited to have a conversation with you here this afternoon. Morning for you. Yeah, that, that, yeah morning for me. It's 8am at the moment over here. And yeah, that's quite, a, quite an honor of being listening to you and reading your work for quite some time now. So um, yeah, very stoked to be a guest on your show. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I've been a big fan of what you're doing with the Inside Running podcast and your coaching in Australia. But why don't we just start by learning a little bit more about you? I do have a pretty widespread audience, but many of them probably don't know who you are. So who is Brady Trellfall and what do you do? Um, yeah, I guess I'm a coach. I work for a company called Run to PB. So I do some coaching there. I'm a, a marathon runner. Well, trying to be a marathon runner. I've run a 219.53 marathon. So I've just snuck under that two-hour 20 bracket there. I've probably been running for the last uh, probably 15 years. I got into it as a bit of a late teenager and, um, yeah, started on the track with some shorter distances, the 1,500 and the 3,000 metres and then progressed to the roads. And, yeah, ever since then kind of haven't really looked back and really enjoyed being in the running environment. Um I've got a bit to do with like the running community with Parkrun over here. So started that in my town, which is fantastic. And I've done a few kind of fundraisers with running. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm also uh, one of the hosts and the producer of the Inside Running podcast. So yeah, running for me is kind of in every aspect of my life. I'm also a school teacher. So I do a bit of um, 
yeah, relief teaching, substitute teaching with school teaching. And, um, yeah, it kind of sums me up in a bit of a nutshell, I suppose. Well, minus the teaching part, sounds like we have quite a bit in common. But let's start from the beginning of your story. What was your initial introduction to the sport? You just mentioned how you started running 3,000 meters, 5,000 meters in school. But what was it that brought you to competitive running? Yeah, so the first thing for me was I always played um, ball sports and kind of team sports. We take AFL football pretty seriously over here in Australia and always played that. But just when everyone started growing in the teenage years through puberty and adolescence there, I pretty much didn't and I was quite small and skinny and I stopped playing those ball sports just because it was a bit physical and I couldn't really have much of an impact on the field. So um, I actually started refereeing, so like, boundary umpiring so when the ball would go out of bounds I'd throw the ball back in and run up and down the sides of the AFL football oval for for a couple of hours and that was my kind of first introduction to running at about 15 and I quickly figured out that the faster you could run the better games you'd get to umpire and the um, more money you'd make so that was pretty appealing for me so instead of just training on a Tuesday and a Thursday night, I started training on every night of the week and started umpiring some higher level games and then um, got paid more, which is pretty good for a 15 year old. And then after doing that in the winter season, my dad kind of identified that I had a bit of talent and took me down to the local athletics club. And I, um, I met a fantastic man there, my first coach, John Burke, and he was really kind of patient with me. He Um, he held me back, which was at the time something I wasn't really happy with. I wanted to run 3Ks and 5Ks and 10Ks on the road and maybe a half marathon because I thought they were my best distances. But he he got me to run 800 metres and 1,500 metres and develop my speed and be really patient with me so I could turn into a, a good open age athlete. Did your parents have any background in competitive athletics? Uh, no, not at all. My dad was involved with the with the referees kind of association, so that was the connection there, and he got me down there. But um, yeah, I was definitely didn't have any great sporting genetics passed on to me because um, I think my first fifteen hundred meter race I ran four forty, and my first three thousand meter race I ran ten fifteen. So um, where I am now, kind of a long way off those times as a bit of a junior. Were you hooked right away on the sport or did it take a little bit of time for you to realize it was something you wanted to pursue and that you could ultimately be pretty good at? Yeah, I was hooked straight away. I was hooked by the appeal that um, you could work hard and you saw those results. So um, I think coming from team sports, you could work hard and still not be successful because there were so many different aspects that had to click and have to go right for that team to be successful. Whereas I noticed from a really early stage that if I did the work, I was going to be successful. And um, it didn't take long for my times to times to drop. I kind of call it the honeymoon period now with some of the athletes that I coach that you know, in those first six to 12 months, it's really good because if you get the training right and if you're patient and kind of just hit that sweet spot in training, it's almost like every second weekend you can go out there and uh, PR a race. I'll need you to educate me a little bit here. You had mentioned how 
when you got into running, you joined a club. And I know that club running is a big deal in Australia. And here in the States, at age 15, you would join your school team. There's not really clubs for teenagers. You just run for your school. And if you're lucky, you'll have a good coach and a good program and you have the opportunity to develop. So fill me in a little bit about the Australian running scene and how the club system works and just take me through your initial foray into the sport when you joined that club at 15 years old. Yeah, great question. So um, in the town that I lived in, Bendigo, it was probably a town of 110,000 people. So we had five athletic clubs and it's a bit of a, my dad just knew someone at one of the clubs. So he kind of took me down to that one and it was kind of a bit of a luck that I um, met that coach who was one of the coaches for that club. So they would have cross-country meets every weekend during the winter, which, you know, it's probably not traditional cross-country. There's a lot of races on dirt roads or shared bike paths, but there would be a race on every weekend just for that club. And then every fourth or fifth weekend, all the clubs would get together and have a kind of a inter-club meet where they would race each other and, you know, then they'd hand out kind of prizes and they were kind of the special races throughout the the winter season. And then in the summer season, the track and field season, the same thing, all the clubs would come together every Saturday morning and there would be a meet on at the athletics centre and would, yeah, race over a 1500 or an 800 And then from that area, it would progress. So you could go to regionals and run against the other kind of country towns in the area. And one of those meets might be uh, every two or three months, you might have an opportunity to do that. And then there would be a state meet. And then um, you'd go over to, if you qualified for national championships, you'd be able to go to national championships as an individual. So um, whereas the school stuff over here, you just represent your school maybe there might be a school cross-country race where you go against the other schools and a school track and field meet and we don't have that team environment at all you'd kind of go uh, on a bus with maybe 10 15 other athletes who might have been doing athletics in their on in their spare time kind of on the weekend and just compete and then come home and if you were successful you'd go to the next meet with your kind of parents taking you down there to do a race in Melbourne, which was the local capital city. And so it's all grounded in that club scene. So when you join this club as a teenager, do a lot of folks end up staying with that club throughout the entirety of their competitive career to one degree or another? Or do people switch between clubs? How does that all work? Yeah, another good question. Um, It works. And well, the good thing I must say about those clubs is when you join, there's 12-year-olds and there's also 70-year-olds. So there's a really mix of ages and abilities. And when you do those cross-country races during the winter, they're often handicapped. So someone might have a 10-minute handicap over 5 or 6K and then um, you'll try and chase them down and things like that. So it's really inclusive and probably more participation focus, not um, super elite, super competitive, if that makes sense. And then – There will be opportunities during the winter that I should have mentioned before to kind of do a state kind of league competition. So we uh, run in the state of Victoria. So we have a 10-race series 
And as the town of Bendigo will send a team to, say, a 12K cross-country race in Melbourne, and same as your system, where you finish in that race, you'll get points to go towards your overall standing and then there'll be kind of, um, yeah, a champion at the end of the season to see who's got the most points. Usually people stay with their clubs. I've, I've changed once to... Bendigo, the town I lived in, probably didn't have the strongest running culture, so I ran for a town called Geelong for a few years, and that was um, that was the town that Craig Mottram and Lee Troop both came from. So it was pretty awesome to have the opportunity to run in relay teams with Craig Mottram handing over the bat- baton to you, and um, yeah, Lee Troop in the same team as well. And that was kind of a bit more of an experience of instead of being the number one runner in the team and trying to get five or six other people to come down to Melbourne with you, it was more trying to stay in that Division One team and being the fifth or sixth runner. So that's why I made the decision to change that team. But now I'm back with Bendigo and, uh, yeah, we've got a good good young team and trying to be competitive again at the state level. What does that look like from a training standpoint? Are you meeting with the club once a week, twice a week, on a daily basis? How is that all organised? Yeah, some clubs will. Um, I don't. I actually live an hour north of the town I mentioned, Bendigo, in another smaller town called Echuca, which has uh, 20,000 people. So I do all, or pretty much all my training by myself. And most clubs will be pretty similar. They'll have people, might have two or three people training together, but then they come together on the weekend to race. So um, because I think we're so well spread out, it's kind of hard to get that really group training effect happening. One thing I'm really interested in is this idea of running culture and what it looks like in different places. And I've never been to Australia, so I'd love to hear from you what running culture looks like in your country. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's, um, it's I suppose... It's very participation-based. We, You're familiar with Parkrun. I think you guys have got a few popping up over there at the moment. They're slowly but surely making their way into America. Yeah, so we've had the Parkrun boom, and if people don't know what the Parkrun is, it's pretty much a 5K timed. Um, it's not a race. It's a run every Saturday morning, same place, same time. It's free. And, um, Free, yeah, you sign up online, get your barcode. When you finish, kind of get your time sent to you in an email a few hours later. So we're, we've got a huge running culture of people that I guess love doing park run, keeping fit, people love doing fun runs, people love ticking off a half marathon in under two hours and training for 16 weeks towards that. And um, we've... Yeah, I think that's where most the attention is in Australia if you're a runner, which I think is a bit of a shame and it's one of the reasons why we started the podcast because we do have some really good elite athletes getting around at the moment and trying to showcase them as well. So we're kind of, um, yeah, we're really community kind of based and just trying to get people fit and moving. But at the other side of things, we've got some really good elite runners as well who are starting to make a bit of a – Uh, mark on the world scale. We'll get into your podcast here in a bit, but let's sort of go down the road of Australia's rich history in in distance running, really. You mentioned Craig Mottram and Lee Troop. um, And going back even further than that, you've got like Ron Clark and Derek Clayton, Steve Monaghetti, Rob DeCostella, like all these really 
you know, famous names when, when it comes to yes. running history who during their time had an impact at the world level. So let's go back to your origins in the sport when you got into it at age 15. Who were your heroes growing up and how aware were you of Australia's rich running history? Um, yeah, Craig Mottram was my guy. I think I was just coming into the sport when he got that bronze at the World Championships at Helsinki. And, um, yeah, that was probably one of my first impressions that an Australian can be up there with the best in the world. And I think the further I got into it, I started to dig into the history of De Costello and um, Steve Monaghetti. Steve Monner's, you know, really relevant to this day and age. He still goes to fun runs as ambassadors and will do live commentary and stuff on on TV and the live stream events and things like that. So he's always been kind of in the spotlight and um, it probably took a bit of digging around and finding some old books to hear about uh, Ron Clark and Herb Elliott, who was a great 1,500-metre miler as well. Yeah, John Landy, who was the, the second guy to break the four-minute mile. So, um, yeah, it took a bit of digging around some of those old texts to really hear about some of those guys. But Craig Mottram was the guy for me. I went to the 2006 Commonwealth Games when – he was up against like Ben Limo and Augustine Chogi in the 5,000 metres and, um, you know, he ran 12.57, I think it was that night and just got beaten by Augustine Chogi but had a really good race and, um, yeah, we had 100,000 people in the stadium there cheering for him and for me that kind of gave me goosebumps and it was someone that I've looked up to for a long time. What do you think's happened in recent years that has taken some of the spotlight off of the top athletes in the country, and when did you decide you wanted to bring it back onto them? Um, yeah, another great question. I think I think we've become a bit too um, focused on running as a sport for that participation kind of thing, which is great. It's awesome to get people moving, but I think some people forget that it's also an elite sport where right. we've got – Guys like, you know, Stewie McSwain at the moment, who's one of, well, he's, you know, just moved to second all time with his 1304 at the Diamond League final. You know, he, you know, might struggle to make a bit of an impact amongst all these people that are actually interested in running and going down to do park run every weekend, yet they may know who the local Instagram influencer is who's got all these thousands of followers and, you know, runs a 30-minute 5K to to keep fit, if that makes sense. and um, It makes complete yeah. sense. The same thing's happening here in the States. Sorry to interrupt, but we see it here as well where we have a rich history in the sport, especially in marathoning, and we're seeing a bit of a resurgence now. But in recent years, the focus was elsewhere. It was on the participatory side, which, again, no offense to, to those people. It's great to see people out and active and moving, but there was this loss of appreciation, I think, for the sport and the stars who helped make it what it was. And it's it's great to see that sort of resurgence here as well. So I think there are a lot of parallels between what's going on there and what's going on here in the U.S. Yeah, 100% agree with you. And it was it's just trying to make that connection for people because they just don't see it in like mainstream media. Athletics doesn't get a lot of attention over here in Australia. And I find that a lot of the athletes um, are pretty quiet kind of personalities as well. They're not the kind of guys that will pump up their own tires and talk big game. And that could be a part of the problem as well, that we don't have those personalities there. And 
being over here in the um, southern hemisphere, we they spend a lot of time overseas, kind of chasing races and kind of chasing that endless summer because we're on the kind of opposite uh, end of the weather with the rest of the world as well. So they might have a, you know, the guys doing the world indoors kind of circuit at the moment is is a long way from Australia, and sometimes it's hard to get attention in mainstream media to kind of keep these guys relevant. And when did the idea to start the podcast and have a little bit more of a presence in, we'll call it the elite running scene there in Australia, come to you? And what was the first step that you took to help make people aware of these athletes who are doing incredible things? Yeah, so it was a bit of a journey. So as I said before, I kind of do a lot of my training by myself. So I uh, constantly listen to podcasts and, you know, one of the first ones that I listened to was Marathon Talk and I'd listen to a bit of Joe Rogan or a bit of Rich Roll and I really just enjoyed those long-form interviews where I could put the iPod in and go for a two-hour run and kind of listen to just a, a long conversation for a long time. Most of the time I'd be learning something while I was out there, whether it be, you know, from someone involved in sport or, yeah, any aspect of life. And I kind of listened to those podcasts and thought I could probably do a similar thing in Australia just with people I know around the running scene or people that I'm kind of interested in just in my life. So I actually started a, a podcast called Tell Me Your Tales And it was just a podcast where I was going to interview people that I found interesting. And, um, yeah, some were elite athletes and some were, you know, I interviewed my local mayor in the town I live in and the local musician and kind of just had long-form conversations with them about what makes them successful and what they think happens in life and some of the life mottos or mantras that they live by. And, um In doing that, I interviewed a guy called Julian Spence, who at the time was a 224 marathoner, and we had a really good chat, and I kind of noticed that he had some really good opinions on things, and um, he was running the Berlin Marathon in 2017, and so was I. And I'd also interviewed another guy from Canberra, so that's a bit north of where I am at the moment, called Bradley Croker, and similar thing, different personality to Julian. But, um, yeah, had some really good views and really good at articulation and I kind of come up with the idea to maybe do a bit of a side project for Tell Me Your Tales called The Road to Berlin because we're all running Berlin Marathon where we got on Skype every Monday night. We had a conversation. We went through Monday to Sunday of our training and kind of spoke about, we kind of picked picked each other's training apart, I guess, and just did a, I guess it was kind of an audio version of a blog. And um, I released that alongside Tell Me Your Tales. And when I started doing that, the numbers just started going through the roof. And um, it was quite interesting because we weren't really sure what we were getting ourselves into or what would happen on race day. And unfortunately for Brad, he got injured, so he uh, couldn't race Berlin. Julian went out and ran 2.18, so he jumped from 2.24 to 2.18. I ran 2.20 and 15 seconds. And, um, yeah, we took all these people for a bit of a ride that we weren't sure what direction we were going in. And um, we got back from Berlin and kind of did a post-race show and talked about unpacked how the race went and all those kind of things. And then we just got a lot of emails and messages about how we had to keep doing something. People missed hearing about us every week and it was quite unscripted and quite raw and quite honest. It was probably how you describe, um, 
yeah, people are listening in to what we may just talk about on our long run and kind of that banter between us. So that's how Inside Running came about and we still do that. We still talk about what we're doing for training and um, we interview a guest every week. So that's where we kind of hit a niche market in Australia where no one was documenting our best runners at the moment. So like our Stewies who I spoke about before, we have, you know, had Collis Birmingham on the show. We'll find older people like uh, Steve Monteghetti, for example, and he'll tell us through all his stories back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s when he was at the Olympics. And, um, yeah, it's been fantastic for us to – because we're not journalists and we don't work in the media and all of a sudden we've kind of got this running Australian podcast and it's been interesting to just see how it's grown legs and taken off. Well, I think that's just – or just speaks to the power of storytelling – And as you said, you're not trying to be journalists. You're not trying to uncover some kind of truth that is going to shake up running. You're just trying to appeal to people who are interested in the same things that you are and show them that there is more common ground than there is not. And giving a lot of these athletes, whether they're current or even from the past, a platform to to share those stories, which are going to entertain people, inspire people and, you know, set off some spark to help them work toward their goals. And I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing thing. And that's one of the, the coolest things about podcasting because it's a medium that I think lends itself to storytelling better than sitting down with even a long form article from time to yeah. time and, and trying to read that. It's something you can take with you on a run, just like you were discussing and be inspired by while you're, you know, while you're out there, or maybe while you're commuting to work. Uh, and it inspires you to get out afterward and start working toward, towards some goal. And I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it's been really good just to, to showcase the personalities of some of our greatest runners that we've had in the past and, you know, who are emerging at the moment and guys who are at that top at the moment, just hearing about almost how human they are. Like they're just people like you and I who are going out and getting the training done and they may have a bit more talent, but they're working super hard. And back to that kind of, you know, participation kind of market that, they can easily relate to these guys if they give them the opportunity or or have the opportunity to kind of hear some content on them. Hey, let's take a real quick break to thank my friends at Path Projects for sponsoring this episode. Path Projects is a US-based running apparel company that designs and manufactures technically advanced running shorts, base liners, shirts, and headwear with a minimal design aesthetic, high-quality materials, timeless style, and unmatched price. I wore the Zion cap and the Tahoe 3-inch base liners when I set my marathon PB at CIM last fall, and I wear the Cascade short sleeve t-shirt in training all the time. Look, Path's designs are minimalist without any big logos or bright colors. They're just clothes that fit well, look good, and are super comfortable in a variety of situations. Path uses a consumer direct model. Their apparel is only available at pathprojects.com, which eliminates the retail markup and offers you phenomenal products at a great price. Path is hosting a contest between now and June 12th where they'll be giving away 10 of their hats. I wear them all the time. They're super sweet. It's a totally free contest and you can enter now at pathprojects.com slash Mario. That's my name. My thanks to Path Projects for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What has it done for you as an athlete because you've continued to improve 
during this time. You mentioned how you went to 220 and then you took that under 220 with a 219.53 and are working toward getting even faster here over the next couple of years. So I'd love to learn how this process has affected you personally as an athlete and as a person. Yeah, it's only had positive impact on all three of us, actually. it's uh, We've all improved. Brad, he actually, after missing Berlin, he went to a marathon in Japan six months after and ran 2.17. So when we started, I was the quickest, and now I'm the slowest with a 2.19, which uh, isn't much fun. The boys get into me a bit there. But I think for me it's really helped me understand why I do everything I do for my running week. So why I do – you know, 10 miles on a Monday, whereas in the past it's just what you do because it's on your program kind of thing, whereas we'll unpack the purpose for every run, every workout. And um, it's almost like a, I've almost picked up two mentors. Um, they're, they're kind of like sports psychologists. We kind of vent to each other every week and we kind of have our backs but also criticise each other when we have to. And for me, that's been something pretty new. And it's also it's also inspiring. I know when I ran at Berlin last year, you know every timing mat you run over every five kilometres that there's going to be, you know, thousands of people sitting back in Australia kind of tracking you. So it kind of keeps you accountable. Sometimes that's uh, good and bad. Sometimes people want to put their opinions in the Strava comments or whatever it is to kind of get into you about something that you've said on the show. But yeah, it's been interesting opening opening your training up to a wider community, but it's only made all three of us faster and better. And it's it's almost that reality radio, like Julian's running in Japan in two weeks' time and could realistically run under the IAAF qualifier of 216 and get himself a spot to go to the world champs in in Doha, which would be pretty amazing considering we've documented the last two years of how he's gone from being a 224 guy to possibly a 215 guy. Yeah. Let's go down that road for a second. How does the selection process work in Australia to make one of the international teams, be it the World Championships or the Olympic Games a couple of years from now, because here in the U.S., we famously have a trial system where there's a qualifying mark just to get in, and then you've got to finish top three at the trials to make the team. I'd love to learn how it works in Australia. Yeah, pretty much hit the time and then select as discretion. So, um, yeah, you got to get under the 216, which the IWF set, and I'm pretty sure Australia, sometimes we change that, but in the past we've been just going off whatever the IWF set, and then the selection panel will sit down and pick who they think are the best three. At the moment it's quite interesting because we've kind of got um, Michael Shelley, who's a – 211, 212 guy. We've got Liam Adams, who's also a 212 guy as well. And um, they're not really focusing on world championships too much because they'll race somewhere and try hit a time for Tokyo Olympics. So it kind of gives um, our sub-elite guys a really good opportunity that if you can hit the qualifying time, you could get yourself a singlet, um, which is, yeah, pretty pretty awesome to think about. Some, you know, guys who are working full-time but take the running pretty seriously and they might have an opportunity to represent Australia on the world stage. Well, and you're one of them, so what would it mean for you to be able to get to that level in the next year or two and have the opportunity to represent your country? 
yeah, it'd be absolutely amazing. It'd be a yeah, a dream come true. It's kind of it's still a bit of a way off for me, but I'd I'd like to think that's why I keep going back to the marathon because I think I've still got some big improvements to happen. Um, yeah, I've had to work out a few things with race nutrition and trying to get my weight up a bit, even when I'm training for a marathon and just trying to build a bit of that leg strength for that back end. I think I've, I've as most of the listeners will know who have run marathons, I. I feel amazing through 30K and then all of a sudden the wheels fall off and I've kind of faded a lot in my five marathons that I've ran. So I know there's still a lot of potential there if I can just nail one. I just want to I just want to feel in a marathon like you feel in a five or ten or a half marathon when you can run the whole thing even and have a bit of go left in the legs in the later stages. So that would be amazing to get an opportunity. And I think because um, – yeah, Athletics Australia went with the 219 qualifier a couple of years ago. I think that was a really good opportunity for guys like me and guys like Brad and Julian on the podcast to really have a bit more of a go and just kind of see a bit of a reward there if you're good enough to get it. Whereas in the past when it's been 212, there was just no chance guys like us were ever going to get down to 212 if we were being realistic. Yeah, well, and especially as someone who – until recently was working a full-time job as a teacher and a principal. And you mentioned how you've gone to relief teaching or substitute teaching just this past year. Did you make that decision so you could devote a little bit more time to your training and racing and take care of those little things that you mentioned or those areas of improvement where you know you can make a lot of gains? Yeah, yes and no. I um you, you know Mario how much work it is to to start and run a podcast and um as we kind of touched on before I do a bit of coaching and uh we've got a Airbnb property as well that kind of takes a bit of time and effort to to manage and organize. So I probably found that my job was pretty stressful. As you said, I was a principal, I was a deputy principal, so kind of second in charge of a school, was also spending three or four days a week in the classroom teaching. So I found I was working some pretty big hours. Um, my running was, you know, happening at 5 a.m. in the morning and 5.30 p.m. at night, and I was probably putting it on the back burner and not really prioritising sessions or workouts. And I was also trying to manage, you know, being a coach and being a husband and being a podcast producer at the same time. So I probably felt like I was doing six things okay and nothing really well. So that was the decision to put teaching on hold. I took a year's leave from my job and, um, yeah, now schools will call me when someone's sick or someone's at a meeting and I'll just go in and I'll do the do the 8.30 to 3.30 really, which is the best part of school teaching. I enjoy being with the kids. I enjoy, yeah, communicating with them and teaching them, I guess, rather than doing all the admin and doing the reports and, yeah, all that kind of stuff that – you probably don't see from school teachers. So that was a bit of the decision to put that on hold so I could put a bit more effort into my own running, my own podcast and yeah, be a bit of a be a bit of a better husband as well, be a bit more present around the house rather than doing all these kind of extra things at eight PM at night. I had a I had a friend and I you probably may, may have heard of it. I think he he got it off the Tim Ferris podcast, but he kind of said to me, give your life a, a score out of ten and I came up with a number seven and you know, I was making some good money and I was healthy and running at an okay level. And I said, yeah, seven out of 10 is probably the number that I really think sums up my life. And then after I said that, he said, you can choose a number, any number other than seven. So 
the option was, do I drop back to six out of 10 or do I go up to eight out of 10? And for me, I probably dropped back to six. Everything was just a bit too busy, a bit too hectic. And yeah, waiting up, waking up some mornings was almost like, yeah, wondering how I'm going to survive the day and fit everything in. And that was kind of causing me a bit of stress and a bit of concern. And I didn't think I was living my best life. So I'm not making as much money as I used to, but I'm much more happier and I'm, yeah, kind of driving towards those goals in running now. And I think in the past I had a lot of excuses why I couldn't run well, whereas now I'm prioritizing that a bit better. What differences have you seen in your running, in your relationships on the home front and with the podcast since you've stepped back from teaching full time? Yeah, well, first off, I'm not as stressed. Like, I feel like I'm a lot more present um, and everything's just slower. Like, I'm sure there's listeners out there that get out of work. They've got this 15-minute window to quickly get changed in their running gear, warming up, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're doing some mile repeats or 1K repeats or whatever, and it feels like you're you're still at work, whereas now I can kind of, yeah, take my time. I can get up in the morning, do my kind of activation drills. I can have a coffee, have some toast with my wife before she goes to work. And yeah, everything's not as rushed anymore. And I think we hit some, we hit some problems with the podcast as well, trying to be, we were always raw and always genuine, but sometimes we just didn't dot our I's and cross our T's with some research. So now we're putting in, well, I'm putting in a bit more time to plan things out and organize guests in advance and all those kind of things that you don't see. Um, well, you kind of don't see them because they're behind kind of closed doors, behind the kind of curtain a bit. But that's been probably the biggest thing, that everything's more organised now. I've also been able to travel to train with people. So, um, yeah, jumping in a group in Ballarat and getting to train with people, that's where Steve Monaghetti and Collis Birmingham kind of are from. So they've got a really good running culture. That's about three hours' drive from where I am. So I've done that a couple of times, and that's just something I wouldn't have had the time to do when I was working full-time. How do you think about your training? You mentioned how... You're part of the club, but you largely operate on your own. Are you completely self-coached? Do you have mentors that you bounce things off of? Or do you work with a coach who is writing your program and guiding you towards your goals? Yeah, the best way to sum that up was I have a mentor, like Richard Gleisner. He's a he's a 217 guy and a 29-minute 10,000-meter guy. And um, yeah, I've known Richard for probably 10 years. So he knows me really well. He doesn't, he lives in another town about four hours away. So I don't get to see him that often, but he'll write me a program and then I'll kind of make some changes possibly. And then we'll bounce back and forth. So yeah, he's really good sounding board for me. Um, I've been doing this for yeah, the last kind of 14 years now. So I think I know a lot about sport and I read a lot and I listen a lot. So we'll kind of bounce those ideas off each other to come up with the program and then we'll believe in that and have faith in it and then stick to it. We won't change it much after it's been, well, we might may change kind of workout days if I'm sore or tired, but most of it stays pretty similar to what we agree on there. Um, And yeah, 90 percent of my runnings kind of by myself so um it's it's hard sometimes but I think it's also a reason why I've been able to string the years together uninjured I think because I'm always running by myself 
I can kind of, you know, if I'm feeling sore, I can jog along, you know, a bit slower. Whereas if I was in a group, those easy days may be a bit faster. If I was, you know, the ego comes out and you want to push the pace a bit to show people where you're at. And sometimes, yeah, I think that's not a good thing about training in groups and being training alone, I guess you really get a good read on your body and what paces to go. Yeah, right. I mean, the thing with a group is somebody's going to be feeling good, even if you yeah, feel like garbage. It's all, it's all and, away, yeah. and as you said, it's hard to hold back when you're going out on a run and someone takes off. You don't want to let them go because in a lot of cases, you guys are trying to do the same thing and you feel like you're falling behind if you're literally falling behind. Uh, and you've got to have that discipline to be able to say, no, not today. I've got to, I've got to back off. And I, I think yeah. whether you are part of a group or you train mostly alone, just learning where that line is for you is extremely important. Yeah. And workouts aren't much better as well. Like so many workouts, I'm sure in group situations turn into races. And we were just talking on the podcast a few weeks ago about that person who's the, the last rep hero who seems to race the last repetition of every track session and kicks it home. And um, yeah, I think there sometimes groups can be a bit dangerous with some personalities put together. You mentioned that you also coach with Run to PB, which you co-founded with some other guys, and that's an online coaching platform. When did you decide to take that leap into coaching other athletes yourself? Yeah, I've probably been coaching for two or three years now, and it just started off, I think, as, as everyone, just helping friends out who may want to do that bucket list, you know, under 40 minutes, 10K, or the 90-minute half marathon, or break three hours for the marathon, and kind of people that have come from other sports that have always been interested in running and are not really sure what to do. And, um, yeah, it started off with a few friends and a few people in my town, and it kind of grew to... 10 people pretty quickly and then a few people dropped off after they ticked off their bucket list and then we got to a stage where there was four of us kind of my other three co-founders and I were all doing the same thing we kind of had our 10 people that were coaching and it it was kind of semi professional like they'd be dropping money into our bank accounts when we write them a program but there was no real structure or we didn't have a social media presence and we we're kind of just doing it on the side without any real professionalism. So um, we came together and thought, you know, let's start this business and then we can market it a bit better and we've started working with events. And um, it's been really interesting just to see how it's progressed because I think there's a massive, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, it probably is very similar that people will Google 12-week marathon plan, they'll print it out, they'll stick it on their fridge and then they'll do it. But there's just no... And they're okay, and I think they're, they've written by some pretty credentialed experts at times, but there's just no personality – sorry, there's no personalization there. It's um, it's hard for people when they print those off to fit that into a busy life. So people sign up with us on Run to PB. They'll select their coach. Otherwise, we'll match them with who they think they can work with well because we're four different coaches at the same time who have had four different – yeah, running careers and running experiences. And um, yeah, we'll personalize it. So I'll, you know, for example, I've got people doing long runs on a Monday, which is untraditional, but it works with their life. And, you know, there's a big range of people who 
want to break 20 minutes for the first time to, you know, guys who are, you know, got an athlete going to Tokyo in a couple of weeks' time who will probably give two hours 30 a bit of a shake. So, um, yeah, it's a really big, big different range. But the big thing with us is it's personal. We want to get to know people's lifestyles. We want to know what works for them, what days they want to do workouts on, what their goals are, rather than just here's 12 weeks, put it on the fridge and tick it off. How much of your own athletic background influences your coaching philosophy? Yeah, a lot, a lot early. Like I think early on I was probably, you know, this is what works for me. This is what I think is going to work for, for the athlete. But I think the more time I've spent coaching people, the more I've had to learn about different philosophies and um, just putting tweaks in there and, and understanding that when you're working with an athlete that it's not a one-size-fits-all one kind of approach. And we've changed changed things a number of times for a number of athletes just to a bit of trial and error to see how they respond. I've definitely felt as well with some of the older athletes to, to maybe stay away from that speed and focus a bit more on strength as some of that speed stuff can be quite risky and they can still run reasonably fast pace off the strength work. So I've learned a lot along the way. I'm still pretty young in my coaching journey, kind of three years in, but yeah, it's been really good to experience some success and I get pretty excited. I was, you know, checking checking Final Surge, which we use as our coaching platform on Saturday morning because I had a few few athletes trying to go under 20 minutes for the first time for 5K and literally kind of waiting for the email to come through to see, see how they went. So for me, it's a different kind of satisfaction than my own running. And I really enjoy passing on, it's all the little tips like, you know, tips about warming up properly and tips about not doing every run at, 80%. I think that's probably the biggest thing that we find when people sign up and we look at what they've been doing. They'll do a 5K, you know, jog around their house, but they'll do it at that kind of 85% four times a week, which is just, um, yeah, it's not a fun way to be training because you're always, always kind of on that limit. So slowing people down is one of our first things that we do. And um, yeah, it's kind of good working with three other coaches as well as the other co-founder because you might sign up and be matched with one coach but we'll we'll spin ideas off each other and kind of talk to each other about what we think is best for the for the athlete well and i think for guys like us who have been in the sport for a long time and have had coaches and have trained and understand a lot of this stuff we don't think twice about it right and we almost take it for granted that this is the way things are and this is yeah. how you handle an easy run and this is how you handle recovery between intervals and this is what you do after a race. And I found myself as a coach when I work with less experienced runners that they've never been exposed to that. And yeah. it's up to us as coaches to to teach them that and to show them how to do things. And I think it's important to be reminded of that from time to time because it can be really easy to just, you know, know what you know uh, and yeah. and get trapped in that way. Yeah, I think sometimes we put out, I think because we've been doing it for so long, you put yourself in a bit of a bubble and think that everyone knows those kind of things, whereas they're the kind of, the, the little things are the really important bits of uh knowledge the nuggets to kind of pass on to the athletes that you think they just assume but they don't and yeah I was working with one athlete and he kind of just said oh, I just I don't enjoy running and we kind of looked at what he was doing and I probably wouldn't enjoy running either that if every run I did was kind of at that 
you know, 85%. It's kind of a, a difficult place to be if you're always kind of hurting yourself on every run, whereas slowing people down and getting their heart rate down, it's quite, I'm not sure if you agree, Mario, but it's quite relaxing and kind of therapeutic and it's almost like meditative as well going out for those easy jogs, which I think is one big thing that a lot of people miss. They think that that old saying of, you know, no pain, no gain is just, yeah, not relevant for a lot of the stuff we do. No, absolutely. I've seen that myself. One of the first athletes that I worked with 12, 13, 14 years ago um, came to me and said, I can't run for more than 20 minutes. I just can't. And I looked at what she was doing and she was going flat out for about 20 minutes. And it's like, well, if you slow down a bit, you can run for a lot longer than 20 minutes and it, you could see the light bulb go off in her head. And the first time that she ran for 30 minutes, it was this huge accomplishment. And you get that buy-in as a coach. And from there, she's finishing a 10K and then a half marathon and then moves up to the marathon. And her whole perspective has changed. And I think that's one of the, you know, the amazing things about, about coaching. And it's a nice reminder of how impactful we can be on someone. Yeah, and I think the lifestyle changes as well is really, really exciting to see. Like, yeah, you know, people might start listening to the podcast and then go to some coaching from there, and all of a sudden you just see their lives change for the better. They get a bit more healthier. There's been a few athletes I've coached who have, you know, gone through divorces and things like that, and you kind of see that running has really been that outlet for them and they've got to experience success in the running that may be at a bit of a dark time in their life when they haven't been that that happy or that enthusiastic about things but they can rock up to a local 10k race and you know win or run a pb or little things like that to just give them a bit of a bit of a boost yeah it's so much more than just a sport or a competitive outlet it is a lifestyle and in some cases like that it can it can almost save someone's life um, because it gives them something else to focus on and is positive is a positive thing for them when some other things in their life aren't going well. They've lost their job or as you say, going through a divorce or whatever it, it may be. And it just shows the power of, of running and that it, it transcends just the sport. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. I, uh, yeah, I haven't looked back since kind of getting into it at 16 and I'm just so appreciative of how much I've got from running. Like it's, um, yeah, it doesn't matter what aspect of running it is just been really, really appreciative of yeah, how much it's given me. I kind of touching wood that I never get injured and can do it for a long time moving forward. Well, let's look ahead. What is next for Brady? You ran 219.53 last fall. I assume you'd like to get faster. Uh, your two co-hosts are a little bit quicker than you right now. What is your competitive future hold? Yeah, so I'm going to Japan in two and a half weeks. Um, as we speak, I'm going over to do the Lake Biwa Marathon. You might remember that was where Jake Robinson debuted last year. Right. So, um, yeah, we going to Japan is really good for us Australians because it's only a well, it's relatively short in flight terms, about 10-hour flight, and the time difference is only two hours. So we only we don't have to worry about jet lag or getting into a new kind of routine. So off to Japan to do the Lake B1 Marathon. I want to run, I think, 218. I think I'm in 218 shape at the moment. 
the plan will be to, I'm not sure how much you know about the Japanese and how they race. Sometimes they're a bit erratic and it can be hard to find a pack or the pack that we've with at 5K can kind of blow up a bit and you can end up running big chunks of it by yourself. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to going over there. want to be pretty even straight through in 69 minutes and hopefully hold it together for a 218. Um, if not, bring it home a bit quicker. We've kind of changed my training a bit, this build-up where I've been doing a lot of workouts at the end of long runs to try and get that that leg strength for that second half. The, the first 30K usually doesn't cause me any problems, but just trying to have that strength in the back 12K has been a problem for me and something we've definitely addressed. So, um, yeah, head to Japan, hopefully run a 218 and um, for the rest of the year, I'm not really sure. I'll run another marathon in you know, October or September around there. And I, at the moment, because I've got a bit of flexibility with my job and can kind of work from work from anywhere, I may yeah, may even get over to the States and try to – I've never done altitude before. It would be good to get over and do a month at Flagstaff or Boulder and um, just see how I race off there this year. Being a bit of a gap year for me with work is all about – pursuing things that I haven't had had the opportunity to do in the past. And last question, I love to ask people this, but what is exciting you in running right now? Um, our top end, like, so I brought up Stuart McSwain's name before, like he ran that 13.04. I think he can get very close to Craig Mottram's Australian record. We've got a couple of young guys stepping up to the marathon as well. We've got um, Jack Rayner, who's a 61-minute half marathoner. He's stepping up to the marathon at London. Brett Robinson, who's a 13-15 5K guy, Olympic finalist. Uh, he's also he, – he did start at Fukuoka and DNF'd at 32K, but he's going to run London as well. I think in Australia we went through a stage where – a lot of our elite guys stayed on the track. So, you know, Craig Mottram, Ben St. Lawrence, uh, Collis Birmingham, they, yeah, stayed on the track and were pretty successful over five and 10,000 metres, but went to the marathon at later stages and, and weren't successful. Um, Collis was going to run Frankfurt in a couple of, not Frankfurt, sorry, um, Hamburg in a couple of months' time. But, we went through a stage where our top runners didn't run marathons in Australia. They just stayed on the track. So at the moment, um, I'm super excited about seeing what these these younger guys, kind of 25-year-olds, can do because when you look back at De Costello and Monaghetti and Derek Clayton, they were running the marathons in their prime rather than leaving it to the tail end of their career and trying to transition to it then. So pretty excited about that at the moment and just the whole running Running culture in Australia is really lifted. We've got some amazing females, Sinead Diver, Jess Trengove, uh, Lisa Waitman, they're all kind of running around two hours 25 at the moment. So not as quick as some of the females in the States, but I think they'll follow suit and kind of start getting closer to that 220 uh, mark. And I think it's just going to have a massive follow-on effect where everyone's just going to lift their performances as well. Yeah, we've see, certainly seen that here, and I don't see any reason why – it shouldn't happen or couldn't happen in Australia and elsewhere. So I'd love to see it personally as a, as a fan of the sport. And yeah, I think, as you said, a rising tide lifts all the boats. 
Yeah, and I think we really look up to, you know, the US distance scene. We kind of, uh, yeah, for that kind of Western culture, we see a lot of your media, like coming from you individually and the flow track stuff. And there's some good uh, relationships between Australia and the US, I think, with the runners as well, where we kind of pay a lot of attention to what you guys are doing over there. So hopefully we can follow suit. Well, feeling is mutual. I love what you're doing with the Inside Running podcast. It's been fun following your athletic journey and seeing the improvement at 36 years old, that inspires me to see others in that same situation still getting after it. So keep on keeping on. I'm a big fan and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No worries at all, Mario. Thanks for the opportunity. Keep doing what you're doing. We love it down here. All right. That's a wrap on this episode. Thank you so much for listening in. Really hope you enjoyed the show. I'd also like to thank Path Projects for sponsoring this episode. Path is a U.S.-based running apparel company that designs and manufactures technically advanced running shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear with a minimal design aesthetic, high-quality materials, timeless style, and unmatched price. Path uses a consumer direct model. Their apparel is only available at pathprojects.com, which eliminates the retail markup and offers you phenomenal products at a great price. Path is hosting a contest between now and June 12th where they'll be giving away 10 of their hats. It's totally free to enter and you can do so right now at pathprojects.com slash Mario. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please share this episode on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which will help new listeners to discover the show and it really means a lot to me. Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank my man, John Summerford at bearsrecords.com. As always, he takes care of my audio needs for this show, including the music, which he produced himself. And John is a big part of my small team here at the Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you are digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm-hmm.